If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the um, recording booth. Zechariah 12. We've got a few more lessons, one chapter per week in chapter 12. And it has one of my favorite verses in the whole Old Testament in it. We begin with verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Stop right there. We've seen that phrase earlier in Zechariah. It's found also in Isaiah and elsewhere. What it means is this is God's word coming as an oracle. And the prophet had this, like it's a heavy burden. I've got to speak this. It's like it says in Jeremiah, God's word was fire in my bones and it was better to speak than not to. And I also mentioned earlier that we are burdened to speak to someone about Christ. Now we're commanded to and we get cold feet, but you know what it's like. You're burdened for someone in particular. And you say, I've just got to witness to that man or that woman, relative, neighbor. Do it. Because if God puts that burden on your heart, he's got a reason for it. God's probably already been working on that person. But if you back off, what if that person dies before you could go to him? Very serious. Then look at the rest of the verse. It says, Thus says the Lord, which is what prophets said as they're quoting God verbatim. And three interesting things are said about the uniqueness of God. The first one, it says, he stretches out the heavens. And uh, there are three heavens. There's the atmosphere, there's outer space, and the immediate presence of God. And this is referring to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven, the heavens. And secondly, it says the earth, Genesis 1.1, and it says here, he alone created the earth. It didn't create itself. Psalm 100 says, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We didn't come about by evolution. And then thirdly, it's an interesting one. It says, God alone forms the spirit of man within him. Now, that's a reference to two earlier things in the Old Testament. The first is right there in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve in slightly different ways, much different than the way he creates us through our parents. But what God did was that he first made Adam out of dirt. Maybe that's why little boys like to play in dirt. But made him out of dirt, kind of like a statue of mud, a sculpture, but it had no life until God breathed a spirit into him, and it says he became alive. But then God didn't do that with Eve. He put Adam to sleep, took a rib out, closed it up, and from that one rib, a woman, wouldn't you like to have seen that? Was it gradual or was it instantaneous? Look at that rib, that, that piece of bone, and then... It just grew. And evidently God immediately put a spirit within her. But there's mystery how God continues to do this. Uh, look at a verse over in Ecclesiastes. Uh, that's in the Old Testament. You've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon. Mysterious verse, uh, chapters from time to time. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, sometimes... Kind of gloomy because he says everything is vanity without God. But look at chapter 11, verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. 
So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Now, in, at the beginning of that, it says the way of the wind. That sometimes translates as the way of the spirit. Because the, 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 the Hebrew word is ruach, which can mean spirit or wind. And remember, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like wind. So it, it, it's, you don't know the way of the wind that blows this way or that way, as Jesus said in John 3. He says, in relate to that, you don't know how bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. Now, modern doctors know a little bit more, but there's still much mystery to this. For example... It doesn't happen with us like Adam and certainly not like Eve. I mean, God blew his spirit into the lump of clay and became Adam. How does God put a conscious human spirit into that little tiny baby just so microscopically small at the very beginning? There's a mystery there. And theologians have tried to surmise, well, God puts the spirit, the soul in, when it becomes a unique fertilized egg. And uh, we're, we're pro-life. We believe life begins at conception. And that's in some mysterious way when God puts the soul in at the very beginning. But how does he do it? Just like the, how did Jesus become a man? Well, there wasn't a father, a human father. Right there, there's a great mystery, but somehow Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, came into that fertilized egg immediately. Much mystery. And God hadn't told us the answer to any of this. It should cause us to ponder it and wonder and worship God. But God alone does this, not scientists with a test tube and, and so forth. So, okay, go back to Zechariah. Um, so these three things are done by God alone. The third one, he uses parents, but it's God that does it. Verse two, behold, and this is God speaking, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. This idea of making them drunk is comparable to what I said this morning, drinking the cup of God's wrath that sinners deserve. The context is that Israel was to be a special people, to know God, they had his law, his covenants, and this was in preparation for the Messiah that would come from Israel, but they kept going into paganism. So God said, you want paganism? I'll send you paganism. You'll be slaves of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and later the Romans. And then they'd cry out and God would say, okay, I'll give you freedom. So he says, I'm going to punish Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And uh, they will stagger about uh, when their enemies lay siege against Judah. That's the biggest tribe in the southern part of Israel. And Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. In warfare, siege is, is a major way of defeating your enemy. You just surround him and don't let anybody out. And you're basically going to starve them. You find one or two examples in the Old Testament where people were starving so badly, they would not only eat horses and donkeys and tree bark and try to eat leather, they even turned to cannibalism. That happened also in 70 AD when the Romans encircled Jerusalem and the people were starving. They, some of them even turned to cannibalism. 
This happened also in World War II when the uh, Nazis laid siege to Stalingrad in Russia and also Leningrad. But the tables turned and guess who ended up winning the battle? The people that were besieged, not the Nazis. So God says there's going to be a siege against Judah and Jerusalem. You could also take that to another level and say God has a siege around all mankind. And not so much he's starving them, but he's saying, come out with your hands out, surrender, repent, and turn to Christ. I've, I've, I've got you covered. Brings us to verse 3. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. We see here another example that God deals with all nations and in Israel in a special way in the New Testament, the church in a special way. And it says here, God will judge other nations that attacked Israel, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and other ones. Even though Israel deserved to be punished, um, God used them and they had bad motives. And God says, I'm going to use you to punish my people and then I'm going to punish you for punishing my people. You did it with bad motives. And the same thing happens with people that attack us. Uh, they do it with bad motives, but it's God's hand uh, chastening us, for example. So God uses people to bless other people, but also to punish other people. Now when it says all nations, I did some studying on this and looked at various scholars, and most of them, at least those that really believe the Bible, would say this follows the prophetic chronology of Zechariah, some of the prophecies to be performed in the near future and other ones in the far future. And so many of them said, when did all nations ever attack Israel at the same time? It hasn't happened yet. It will happen in the future before the second coming, the battle of Armageddon. And I would go along with that. Verse 4, now, in that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. That's an interesting prophecy. Even horses are not immune from God's destructive providence. And in Bible days, horses were very valuable and very important in warfare. And if this is talking about the future, it's not just talking about horses in modern Warfare. You know, the, the United States Army still has a cavalry brigade. Now, it's not cavalry, that's where Christ died, but cavalry to train them on horseback. Um, sometimes they do shows, but um, some other nations have their soldiers mounted on horseback, but they're not much match for tanks. When uh, the Nazis moved into Poland in September 1st, 1939, um, they came in with tanks, Blitzkrieg, and guess what? The Polish weren't prepared. They sent out soldiers on horseback against tanks, and the machine guns just mowed them down, including the horses. And it says, God will strike the horses with confusion. You ever seen a horse that gets spooked? You know, here's some sound he doesn't recognize. And he takes off running, and God says, I'm going to confuse the horses. Now, since this is predicting the future... I don't think it's literally horses, but horses standing for um, implements of big uh, weaponry. Today, that would include tanks, um, howitzers, bomber planes, um, all sorts of modern weaponry. But it doesn't stand against God. God can uh, 
turn it all around. But notice the irony here. Irony means something kind of paradoxical. It says, I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and I'll strike them with blindness. I will see and they, they won't understand it. Of course, the Bible says that lost sinners, they may be very smart, but spiritually they just don't get it. They don't understand it until God opens their spiritual eyes. By the way, do a study on examples in the Bible where God struck some people with blindness. The Sodomites in Genesis 19, in the book of Acts, God, through Paul, pronounced a curse upon an evil magician, and he was blinded. And then Paul was temporarily blinded on the road to, um, to Damascus, almost said Emmaus, to Damascus. Verse 5 now, and the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. Um, the Jews are back in Jerusalem. You remember they had been dispersed, taken out of Israel when they went down to Egypt. They came back. They went into Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then the King Cyrus let them go back. And then they're going to be dispersed again. Um, they were later dispersed in 70 AD when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. And they said, get the Jews out. But many of them stayed. And then in 135, there was the last straw the Romans said, get them all out. But a few even stayed. Did you know for the last 2,000 years, there have always been some Jews in Israel, even though it wasn't called Israel until 1948. But um, Jerusalem has always been considered the capital of Haaretz, the land, the promised land. But for the first, oh, 50 years or so of modern Israel, it was another city, Tel Aviv. Do you remember a few years ago when the Israeli government said, no, Jerusalem has always been the capital of the nation, so we're going to move our capital over there and the embassies, and boy, the Palestinians did not like that because they say the land is ours and especially Jerusalem. But that's why Zechariah keeps talking about Jerusalem as the center of national Israel, that's where the temple and the palace were. So they'll be bringing them back uh, from this dispersion. Each time they're dispersed, they come back. And there's been a major coming back from dispersion in the 20th century. Do some study, especially after World War II, after the Jewish Holocaust. A terrible thing under Hitler and the Nazis. And then the few that survived said, Wherever we go, we're going to be persecuted. We need our own land. And they pressured um, the British government that had the mandate over Palestine. And uh, they were a little reluctant to go along with it. So there's terrorists and, and a war. And then God laid it on the heart of a certain President Truman that said, yeah, they deserve their own land. And let them go back and we'll give them foreign aid. And they became a nation in uh, May of 1948. And that opened the floodgates where more and more... Come. Has anybody ever read the book or seen the movie Exodus by Leon Uris? Am I the only one? It's a classic movie. And, it, and, and it's very interesting because it's the idea of Jews coming back to Israel right after World War II. And the British did not want them in there. No, no, stay out. And they'd sneak in and they'd do this and that. And they'd come in a bus that pretended to be something else. And the Jews said, we'll never feel at home until we're back in our land. Go and look at the movie by Leon Uris. And so it says here that 
the governors of Judah, that's the big state in southern Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. And again, verse 6, in that day, notice he keeps saying, in that day, long in the future, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited against, again in her own place, Jerusalem. Jews like to sing that, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So the Jews will be back in Jerusalem. And as it says here, they will be victorious over all these surrounding peoples. Um, how could a small nation be successful against so many? Anybody old enough to remember the Six-Day War, 1967? Vic, you remember that. Tiny little Israel, population maybe three million. All these Arab Muslim nations, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, all got together and ganged up on little Israel. Guess who won? God gave the victory to little Israel against all their nations. That happened again in 1973, and then you have the very, very recent intifadas, but somehow God blesses Israel in giving them success against overwhelming odds against them. Let me also throw this in. It's not in the text, it's not in my notes, but you may have heard that uh, about the really brave uh, Israeli soldiers, very brave, very smart, especially when they link up with the Mossad, the uh, intelligence service. But for many years, um, every uh, Jewish citizen was considered a soldier that could be called up for these major wars, even the women. They did that for many years. And, and in that movie, you'll see you know, women dressed up in khaki fighting with a machine gun. They later changed that policy. They said, no, men only. Not because, you know, the superior of men over women, but they said, uh, this is going to inflame the Arabs. When they see women are fighting them, they say, we're not going to die at the hands of women. So the Jews said, no, that's going to make them even fanatics in fighting. So put the women elsewhere in the tents and make them secretaries, nurses, and other things, but not frontline. So there are really very few women in the Israeli army today. That's mentioned in verse 8. In that day, the, in that day again, the, um, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, great general. The house of David shall be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. You know, we think of David as a great king, shepherd boy. Read the Old Testament. He was a victorious general. He killed many a soldier just with his sword. Very brave. Also tender heart before God. He wrote the Psalms. And it says other people will be like that too. You know, you, you just have to admire the courage of the typical Israeli soldier knowing that they're greatly outnumbered, but God gives them the victory. You can't help but admire that. And by the way, what does it mean at the end of here? It says the angel of the Lord. Now, it depends upon whether you capitalize the A on angel. If it's small in the Old Testament, that means just another angel, a created one like Michael, the archangel. But if it's capitalized, that's when the interpreters say this is not talking about a created angel, but the angel that is God himself. We'd call that the Lord Jesus Christ before he became a man. He appeared in the Old Testament. The word angel in Hebrew simply means the messenger. And it could mean a created messenger like Gabriel 
or an uncreated one where God himself brings the message. And that would be the Lord Jesus. So when it's capital A, that's referring to the Lord Jesus who mysteriously appeared in the Old Testament. Verse 9, again, it shall be in that day, God knows the day and the hour, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And God gave Israel the victory uh, in Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome, and then against the Palestinians in 1948, 67, and 73, against all odds, and I think that God is still protecting Israel. Same principle applies to the New Testament people of God, the church. We're vastly outnumbered, and the world would love to abolish us. But God protects us, and there'll always be God's people, the church, until the second coming, even though it's against overwhelming odds. Now, here's verse 10, that great verse I mentioned, one of my favorites. And it's another messianic prophecy in the book of Zechariah. In other words, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Notice it says, first, I will pour out upon them this spirit of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings the grace of God to us in our experience. Look up Romans 5, 5 when you go home. It says, the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Love of God is not just some impersonal feeling or principle. It's the Holy Spirit in us, the spirit of grace. And it says also the uh, spirit of intercession. That's a form of prayer. It says supplication. Um, and Romans 8 also mentions that, where it says the Spirit helps us in our prayers. We don't know what to pray for. God gives us the Spirit to help us to pray. So here's two functions of the Holy Spirit. By the way, do you notice the Trinity in this verse? I, that would be the Father, mentioning uh, the Son, the, the only Son, and then the Spirit. Unusual examples of the Holy Spirit, sometimes when you don't recognize it. So here's the question. When would this be fulfilled? There are three fulfillments, and we find that pattern in the Bible. Sometimes a double fulfillment, a literal one immediately, and then another one in the distant future, maybe in a different form or a different level. Here you have three. The first one, turn to John chapter 19. And this verse is alluded to. When Jesus was crucified... They pierced his hands and his feet. Zechariah 12, 10. Him whom they have pierced. And then in Psalm 22, which is another messianic prophecy, it says they have pierced my hands and my feet. And, and it says there in Zechariah, people will mourn for him. Look at um, John 19, 37, referring to these Old Testament scriptures. And it says, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have Pierced, and they were, he was pierced for our transgressions, it says in Isaiah 53. Now, go back to Zechariah, and it says, They will mourn for him whom they pierced. Who was mourning 
out on Mount Calvary when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Well, certainly not the Romans. They were just doing their job as professional executioners. Certainly not the religious leaders. They were laughing at Jesus. But you read each of the Gospels, you find at the edge of the crowd were women disciples. First Peter 3 calls them the holy women. And they'd have their shawls over their head and they were weeping and wailing. If you've ever heard uh, Jewish women weep and mourn, it's very loud, it's very emotional. And there would be Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha and Susanna and these other ones weeping, mourning over Jesus, their beloved Savior. And it broke their heart. What about men? Well, John the Apostle was there, but we're not told if any of the other apostles were or if any other men that were believers in Jesus, but it does single out the women and one in particular, Mary, the mother of Jesus, John chapter 19, and she witnessed it. Now, some of you women can understand what I'm about to say better than the men. Imagine what went through Mary's heart on that day. Have you ever thought about that? It's terrible to see someone dying in agony, but that was her son. How would you ladies like to see your son crucified, tortured, being laughed at? That'd break your heart. And so imagine that Mary would have been mourning more than anybody else, which was a fulfillment of a prophecy. When Gabriel gave the um, promise to Mary back in John cha- uh, Luke chapter 1, you're going to have a baby, even though you're a virgin, this is the Holy Spirit's work. And Gabriel said, and a sword will pierce your heart also, Mary. And for the next 33 years, she wondered, what what does that mean? At Calvary, it was as if someone put a sword into her heart when she saw her only son, whom she knew was the son of God, tortured to death. And that's why Jesus had mercy on her and told John, take her away and you'll take care of her for the rest of her life. And John did that. Jesus had mercy because he knew it would have been too much for her to witness his actual death. So she mourned for Jesus and the women and the others did. Notice also Zechariah 12, it says they'll mourn as one mourns for his only son. I have known couples that had only one child and it died, miscarriage or in sudden uh, infant death syndrome. We leave these things to God. God is merciful. God gives, God takes away. Sometimes God withholds. But um, mourning for your only son. It's not like you had 10 and then, well, we've got nine other ones. Um, This was alluded to, oh, 500 or something years ago. There's a famous preacher in Europe uh, who uh, was a bachelor most of his life. And then in middle age, he got married and married a widow, and they had one child, and it died. The preacher's name was John Calvin. They had only one child, him and Illette de Bure from France. And Calvin's enemies were so cruel, they said, that's proof that God is punishing you. You're no good. He took away your baby boy. You know what Calvin said? He says, well, the Lord gave, the Lord take away, the blessed be the hand of the Lord. But God has given me hundreds of spiritual children. He took the man over to the church, opened it up, and he says, behold, these are my children. I think I can identify with that. 
Jesus is the only son of the Lord Jesus. We are adopted children, but Jesus is, you know the verse, his only begotten son, John 3, 16. And so perhaps those that are mourning realize this is God's only son, not just another man. I'm sure Mary would have thought of that. So you see how that's the first fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10. For the second one, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Again, there are multiple fulfillments of this prophecy. And we know because these are, um, Logan, make a note of this phrase, key exegetical indicators. That's a term saying, that's a hint from God what this is really talking about. Such as when it's quoted in the Old Testament, that's God's way of saying, I'm going to give you a clue as to how that mysterious prophecy in Zechariah or Psalms or whatever was fulfilled. Look at Revelation 1, 7. Talking about the second coming. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Can you see how this is referring almost mysteriously to the verse back in Zechariah? They will see him but notice the difference. In Zechariah, it's talking about Jews. Those are the tribe of David and of the house of uh, David and Judah. But here it says all the tribes. At Mount Calvary, it was just Jews that were mourning. The Romans weren't. It wasn't even all the Jews. But here it says all the tribes. And this is at the second coming when people look up and realize Jesus really is the Messiah. And some will mourn and turn to him. And I think you know, this is kind of precise. Um, this would also be part of the great revival of Jews becoming Christians, seeing Jesus is the Messiah. Somehow there's enough delay when they say he's coming. That's Jesus. He is the Messiah. Lee, our forefathers murdered him. And they beat their breasts. They're mourning. And then they turn to him. It's hard for everybody that's an unbeliever to believe in Jesus. It's extra hard for a Jew. Did you know that? I remember a, a missionary to Jews in London giving a, an address, and he said something. He says, he says, I'm welcome in the Jewish homes. I pray for God to bless them, and I you know, respect their customs. And I've had many meals with them. And he says, I found out a secret they don't often tell Gentiles, especially Christians. And he said, it's the worst nightmare of every Jew to wake up and say, Jesus was the Messiah and our forefathers murdered him by turning him over to the Gentiles. They said, that's like the worst nightmare. Our Messiah and hey, and that's why they don't want to think about Jesus as the Messiah because unconsciously, oh, that would be too hard to bear. And ask a Jewish Christian today, what went through your heart when you realized Jesus was your Messiah and your, you see, they have a, union with their forefathers. It wasn't just our forefathers. We were part of them. And we, I crucified Jesus, Zechariah 12, 10, whom they have pierced. The third fulfillment of this is in our own experience. When we look to Jesus, who's pierced, and we realize he died for my sins. And in that sense, I pierced him. He died for me. And that will cause us to mourn for him and for ourselves as the guilty murderers. Great Christians have experienced this deep mourning. I've told you this story about the great Martin Luther. And he had believed in Jesus, but 
this, this powerful truth hit him one day that Jesus died for him. And one day when he was still a monk, he believed, but he had not left the Catholic Church yet. It was time for prayers. And the, uh, another monk came and knocked on his door and said, Brother Martin, it's time to go to prayers. And Martin Luther didn't answer. He says, Brother Martin, are you okay? Open the door and there's Luther on the ground writhing about um, weeping uncontrollably. And in German, he was muttering, for mich, for mich, for me, for me. It hit him. Jesus died for me and I was his murderer. This experience as part of spirituality has, was developed by some of the early Moravians 300 years ago, coming from Bohemia, just close to Germany. Especially a wealthy preacher named Count, uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He wrote some great hymns. And they developed this meditation that they called the blood and wounds meditation, where they would meditate upon Christ on the cross. Now, the medieval Catholics did that with the crucifix, but the Protestants said, no, we don't want to use crucifixes. But they'd meditate upon verses that talked about his pierced hands, and they'd meditate upon that. That's a symbolic of his hands that reach out in love. And then his feet, where he walked paths of righteousness and the nails, and then his heart was pierced, his love for us. And so they'd meditate upon his death on the cross as part of the spiritual. There's much to be said for that. I remember when it happened to me, not long after my conversion, 1972, sitting in church and I can't remember what the preacher was preaching about, but I was meditating upon Jesus dying for me and I was his murderer and I wept like a baby all, all through that sermon. We pierced Christ. We don't just say we're the Jews or the Christ killers or the Romans. It's us, even though we weren't there. We mourn for him whom we have pierced. I read a very moving sermon on, by Spurgeon on that verse in Zechariah. He preached on it, I think, six times in his ministry. I've preached on it several times. And he said this, very interesting. It says, they will mourn for him. And you remember when Jesus was on the way of the cross, there were women mourning for him um, before he even got to the, the cross. And Jesus stopped and said, don't just mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves and for your children they're going to be destroyed by these Romans 40 years from now. But notice he says, don't just mourn for me, but for yourselves. We mourn for our sins. That's part of repentance. We, it pierces us when we see that we pierced Christ. But Spurgeon pointed out, according to that verse, true mourning for sin follows, not precedes our conversion. There is a mourning for sin, part of repentance, before a sinner gets saved. He should feel conviction of sin Fear of judgment, fear of the wrath of God, but that most intense mourning for sin happens after we are converted. When we realize, I killed Christ. I am the guilty sinner. And Spurgeon said, repentance is the tear that falls from the eye of faith when you look at the crucified one. That's very profound. So faith comes first. There's some mourning and repentance, but even more... Hasn't it been like that in your experience? Think about before you became a Christian, you felt the guilt and the conviction of sin. And then as a Christian, you see it even more so. Have you wept for your sins? Have you mourned? 
A great Christian 150 years ago named Thomas V. Moore said this in his exposition of Zechariah. True repentance is only love weeping at the foot of the cross. I like that. The women disciples out there love Jesus. True repentance is love weeping at the foot of the cross. And if nothing else will break our hard hearts, a vision of Christ crucified will do it. Okay, we conclude back in Zechariah, verses 11 to 14. Now you can see why this verse means a lot to me. Zechariah 12, 11 to 14 is of one piece of cloth. In that day, there's a phrase again, there shall be a great morning in Jerusalem. Like the morning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo, that's Armageddon, Armageddon, in the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, the wives themselves, the family of the house of Levi, that's the priestly tribe, by itself, and the wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, Shimei was an opponent of David, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. That keep saying by themselves could mean they just want to go off by themselves. You know, when we really weep hard, we want to be alone. Like a dog that's sick or that's been wounded, that dog just wants to go curl up under a bush somewhere. And so it says, by themselves, even though it says several times, even the women by themselves. Women are more prone to weep than men. So what was said here is that in that day, what day? Well, we'd be talking about a Calvary, and there was some spreading of weeping and then even greater later on when Israel begins to realize as a people we murdered Jesus now will be a mass weeping perhaps starting that great revival of Jews in Romans 11 predicts interesting that it spreads Uh, emotions can spread in a group in a theater they see something on the screen everybody laughs together usually one person starts it Laughter can be infectious. You've been in a group and one starts giggling uncontrollably. The next thing, you're laughing and you don't even know why it can spread. Silence can be like that. Or you can hear a pin drop. Nobody says anything. Weeping can be like that too. This happened, for example, in times of great revival like the Great Awakening. You've heard the story of when the great Jonathan Edwards preached that World-famous sermon centers in the hands of an angry God. And one woman started crying. And another one, another one. And it, by the end of the sermon, virtually everybody was weeping. People were on the floor. Uh, and they're afraid of being punished by God. But it spread. The wind of the Holy Spirit can move upon people and cause more and more to weep. Jews are prone to weeping. Such as in Israel, in Jerusalem, there's the wailing wall. What's wailing mean? They weep and they wail loudly. They're a sad people. Even most of their traditional music is in a minor key, which is like a sad way of singing, a dirge like the blues. But the Bible says, and he promises uh, that they will one day weep, but God says, I will turn their weeping into dancing into joy. Does that not happen with a lost sinner? We mourn, we're grieved, and then God converts us. And the tears of sadness now become tears of joy and happiness. God would transform the Jews one day as well as individual sinners. And not just when the Jews return to the land, or what the Jews call Haaretz, the land, 
But when they turn to their Messiah, just as I said, Jews never really feel at home anywhere until they're back in the land. It's, it's, talk to your Jewish friends about that. And they say, they're just something about the land. We're never at home until we're there. And I would say to them, you're never really home. You're never really a true Jew until you come home to your Messiah. And Messianic Jews say, that's it. It's not just the land. It's when we realize Jesus is our Messiah. We're at home at his feet. It's a very special thing to Messianic Jews. Last application is we need to weep for Christ and for our sins. And those that neither weep for Christ or for their sins will weep in hell forever. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And that's our lesson from Zechariah 12. Shall we pray? Father, there'll be a great weeping. Help us to weep. Holy hot tears for Jesus and for our sins. For we pierced him because he died for us. Help us to be like Martin Luther, Zinzendorf, the holy women out there at Calvary or to some extent even like Mary. But help us to love him. Because with every drop of his pierced hands, we're saying, I love you. Help us to love him as well. In Jesus' name, amen.